Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Ronnie Van Zant. Now let's get started with our story about Ronnie Van Zant. On October 20th, 1977, the band Leonard Skinnerd was involved in a lengthy nationwide American tour to support the release of their fifth album, which was entitled Street Survivors. This lengthy tour would feature the band's first appearance at fabled Madison Square Garden, but also included stops in Deep South locations like Statesboro, Georgia, and Greenville, South Carolina. It would also require transportation by a leased aircraft, which was typically utilized by groups of Leonard Skinner's stature. Unfortunately, the airplane provided by the band's management, a Convair CV-240, was problematic from the outset. This 30-year-old twin-propeller vehicle was cramped and referred to as a bucket of bolts by all concerned. But irritation and discomfort turned to outright fear when, on an October 18th post-concert flight from Lakeland, Florida to Greenville, South Carolina, passengers observed a 10-foot plume of flame streaking out of the plane's right engine. Although some passengers requested that the craft return to Lakeland, it eventually landed intact in Greenville, with many in the Skinnerd entourage insisting that they would never set foot on the Convair again. Following their concert at Greenville, there was confusion on the morning of the 20th, with band members and employees still either refusing to board the charter aircraft or even attempting to find other means of transportation to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the site of the band's next show. Ultimately, the band's lead vocalist, Ronnie Van Zant, the driving force behind the group, told everyone involved that they could either board the plane or be fired. As a teenager from a Jacksonville, Florida, blue-collar neighborhood, Van Zant had recruited schoolmates to form the nucleus of the current band. And by sheer force of will and a remarkable ability to compose popular songs, Van Zant had molded Leonard Skinnerd into one of America's most popular acts. But Van Zant also had a dark side involving violence and substance abuse, and no one, not even fellow band members, would dare contradict him. When female backup singer Cassie Gaines attempted to make a reservation on a commercial airliner and then even asked to travel on the band's equipment truck, Van Zant refused, having famously stated on several occasions that he would never live to see his 30th birthday. Van Zant, age 29, remarked, "When it's your time to go, it's your time to go. We got a gig to do." 
with the pilot still tinkering with the troublesome engine, eventually all 24 passengers boarded the airplane. And finally, at a few minutes after five in the afternoon, the plane took off, intending to land in Baton Rouge approximately two and a half hours later. The main impetus behind this flight had come a long way from his modest roots in Jacksonville. Ronald Wayne Van Zant was born on January 15, 1948. His father, Lacey, was a long-haul trucker, and his mother, Marion, nicknamed Sister, was a part-time donut shop employee and the fundamental caregiver of the family's six children. Even as a young person, Ronnie had ambitions to escape the lower-middle-class enclave he grew up in, which was literally known as Shantytown. Van Zant first excelled in baseball, but once rock and roll became prominent in his life, with such bands as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones making an impression, Ronnie decided that music would be his ticket to stardom. He enlisted some of his baseball-playing buddies to form a rock band, and as early as 1966, three of these baseball-playing acquaintances, Gary Rossington, Alan Collins, and Bob Burns, the future nucleus of Leonard Skinnerd, would rehearse with Ronnie in various spaces in their neighborhood, the prototypical garage band of the era. Predictably, their first live presentation was performed on the back of a flatbed truck for a church festival audience. With names like the Noble Five and the One Percent, these teenagers appeared at various locales in the Jacksonville area. Even from their earliest incarnations, this band was dominated by one constant. Ronnie Van Zant always demanded that the band rehearse relentlessly, far beyond anything that their local counterparts would even consider. Already 18, the lead vocalist came down harshly on other band members if he felt they were slacking off. Since the others were barely out of junior high school, Ronnie, who had a reputation as the toughest kid in a tough neighborhood, established his dominance over the group from the earliest moments of their existence. But unlike his younger counterparts, for Ronnie, his musical involvement was a very serious matter. Although intelligent, Van Zandt had dropped out of high school a few classes shy of a diploma. With his current employment at his uncle's auto parts store and eventually in a meatpacking plant, he probably understood the reality of what his adult life would look like should his artistic career falter. By May of 1969, Ronnie and company, performing as the 1%, were organized enough to attempt to record some vinyl examples of their songs. Looking for a snappier, more interesting name for this release, the band hit upon an idea to mock a former educator at their public school, actually named Robert E. Lee High School. Leonard Skinner was the standard-issue high school gym teacher of the day. Six foot, two inches, over 200 pounds, dressed in shorts, t-shirt, with a whistle around his neck. Skinner coached and taught at Lee High but also was assigned to patrol the halls looking for malefactors of all kinds, especially those in violation of the school dress code. Ronnie Van Zant was long gone at this point, but Gary Rossington especially was subjected to Skinner's admonishment for long hair, a violation that earned him and other band members repeated trips to the principal's office. The standard gag at band rehearsals, where marijuana was omnipresent, was that it was only a matter of time before Leonard Skinner burst through the door and hauled them off to suffer the consequences. Although the new band name was spelled differently on this particular effort, Leonard Skinner was now an official entity. It was about this time that another North Florida rock and roll phenomenon was beginning to make a national impact. 
Dwayne Allman was already an accomplished contract sessions musician at the legendary Muscle Shoals Alabama recording studio known to the industry through his work with artists ranging from Wilson Pickett to Eric Clapton. Although it would take several years for Allman and the Allman Brothers to break through to a national audience, Allman's reputation was such that recording labels began to comb the Deep South for previously ignored similar talent. The Allman Brothers eventually became the mainstay of Capricorn Records, which was formed by their manager, Phil Walden, and Walden's brother, Alan, eventually discovered and signed Leonard Skinner after an audition of several Jacksonville bands, of which Skinner clearly showed the most potential. Alan Walden signed Skinner to a management contract, and to his credit, he brought the band to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and got them recording time with talented producers who helped refine the rough material that would eventually emerge as some of the band's most prominent hits. Walden by then had resigned from Capricorn Records following a falling out with his brother Phil, and was financing his efforts with Skinner out of his own pocket. For the band, the sojourn to Muscle Shoals was an exciting event that seemed a precursor to bigger and better things, and they were eager to take advantage of this opportunity. Typically, they entered every recording session fully prepared and impressed industry professionals with their diligence and material. The band was ecstatic after emerging from Alabama with a demo tape that included such songs as Freebird, Gimme Three Steps, Simple Man, and I Ain't the One. But reality set in when nine recording companies, including Capricorn, not only rejected Skinner, but told them not to bother with any future submissions. Alan Walden was completely in debt, and the band returned to playing local gigs and day jobs similar to Ronnie's. Although their professional progress seemed to be stalled, Skinner played numerous clubs and bars, of which Atlanta's Finocchio's was typical. This hole in the wall was a typically wild, dank, crowded room at which Ronnie was right at home, and typical of the venues they played at across the region. It was here that they first came to the attention of famed sessions musician and industry insider Al Cooper. Cooper was well known as a member of Bob Dylan's backup band and had played on Dylan's song Like a Rolling Stone and the monumental album Blonde on Blonde. More importantly to Skinner, Cooper was looking for talent to sign to his own record label, and he was immediately intrigued with the band, jamming with them on stage. In February 1973, Cooper got the band to sign a ridiculously low-ball deal with his fledgling Sound of the South label, which was distributed by the monolithic MCA. With a laughably small advance of $9,000 and 10% sales royalties for Cooper, double what the band would receive, this contract was dreadful even by current record company standards. But Skinner and Van Zant really didn't have an option. Capricorn would never sign them based on the antagonism between the Walden brothers and nobody else in the industry could have cared less. They took the deal, spent the modest advance on upgrading equipment, and set their sights on getting to work on their first album. Cooper was immediately impressed by the band's preparation and focus, all business once they entered the recording studio. This came from years of rehearsals at the band practice space at a location dubbed Hell House. This shack in the middle of nowhere on the outskirts of Jacksonville was an unair-conditioned, uninsulated dwelling that made for extremely unpleasant conditions, especially during the humid 90-plus degrees of summer. The location on a 90-acre plot of isolated property was an alternative to suburban spaces that usually were subject to local resident complaints and police interruption. 
12-hour days at Hell House made the relative luxury of a professional recording studio a welcome alternative. In preparation to record, Skinner added two important elements to the band. Ed King met Skinner when they were the warm-up band for the Strawberry Alarm Clock. King had written this group's top ten one-hit wonder, Incense and Peppermint, and jumped at the chance to be the third guitar in Skinner's unique three-lead guitar makeup. Billy Powell had worked as a roadie for the band for a year before Van Zant heard him playing piano after a show. Ronnie recognized the potential of this addition to the Skinnerd sound, and Powell also became a full-fledged member of the band. The band quickly recorded 14 tracks, of which eight were selected for their first album. They did this in less than a month at the staggeringly low cost of $22,500, an unheard-of sum of money. However, these sessions were not carefree, with fights between band members and disagreements with Cooper and bass player Leon Wilkeson literally walking out on the band after only two songs were complete. Luckily, Ed King was a versatile musician who played both bass and lead guitar for the remainder of these recordings. Wilkeson would eventually reconsider. Perhaps his subsequent employment in an ice cream factory prompted his permanent return. Cooper hated the band's name, and while he knew he would never get them to change it, he wanted to make sure that record buyers could even pronounce the strange-looking group of letters. To that end, the first album was called Pronounced Leonard Skinnerd" with a phonetic depiction of the group's name. Cooper also got the record company to publicize Skinnerd, not as a bunch of rednecks and bikers, but as an American version of heavy metal British bands like Black Sabbath and Deep Purple. Looking to expand their catalog from such mainstream acts as Elton John, MCA got behind Skinnerd in a big way, recognizing the potential for another breakout act. The album would be released in August of 1973, and to add additional momentum, MCA arranged for Skinnerd to serve as the opening act for The Who, another mainstay of the label. Starting in November, the band would make the quantum leap from small clubs to playing in stadiums and arenas. It was probably not a coincidence that Skinner's first appearance with The Who turned out to be one of the most notorious concerts in the history of rock and roll. At San Francisco's Cow Palace on November 20, 1973, during a performance of Won't Get Fooled Again, Drummer Keith Moon, never shy about his consumption of just about any mind-altering substance he could get his hands on, began to feel the effects of combining brandy and animal tranquilizer. He passed out on stage, was dragged off to the dressing room, and returned for an encore, only to pass out again. This time, possibly as a joke, Pete Townsend asked if there were any drummers in the audience, and a 19-year-old named Scott Halpin responded, accompanying the band for their three-song encore. Already, Skinner had provided The Who and their management with another unique experience. Typically, warm-up bands for The Who were booed off the stage and even pelted with debris. But limited to a 30-minute set, Leonard Skinner won the crowd over and even prompted demands for their own encore. Watching this performance, The Who entourage and their manager Peter Rudge were impressed. Nothing of this nature had ever happened before, and Rudge, who managed both The Who and The Rolling Stones, took note. After their set, Billy Powell also managed to get involved in a fracas that resulted in a solid punch from promoter Bill Graham, who mistook him for a wayward audience member who had snuck backstage. The ensuing melee involved the rest of the band, mixing it up with security until the misunderstanding got sorted out. But this was a predictable beginning for Skinner's entree into rock and roll's big time. Skinner opened shows for The Who through early December and then went out on their own. 
while their first album earned them some modest attention and airplay. Despite the inclusion of the eventually iconic Freebird and Simple Man, their appeal was still limited. Contractually obligated to produce a record every nine months, they returned to the recording studio, again under the guidance of Al Cooper, to produce the band's second album. However, Band members were already excited about a song that they had recorded shortly after their first album recording sessions concluded in 1973. In the summer of 1973, at a typical rehearsal session at Hell House, guitarist Gary Rossington was improvising with various guitar chords in his usual manner. Rossington claimed that the basis for all of Leonard Skinner's music was a repetition of a few simple chord progressions with varied speeds and order. One of these improvisations caught the ear of Ed King, who began to play off of this particular set of notes with his own addition. Very quickly, Ronnie Van Zant was intrigued by this melody and decided to compose lyrics. Greatly influenced by the music he constantly listened to, especially during long bus and automobile rides to performances across the country, he was especially affected by two songs from Neil Young, Southern Man and Alabama efforts that were scathingly critical of the Deep South, and the latter song of the state of Alabama specifically. Van Zant and Skinner had fond memories of their time at Muscle Shoals, and they had driven across the state on numerous occasions. So Ronnie decided to put together a tongue-in-cheek response to what he considered to be Young's overly strident condescension. One of the remarkable aspects of Ronnie Van Zant's process was that he composed words on an extemporaneous basis, his bandmates frequently having no idea what it was he was about to sing. This caused problems on previous efforts where the band might finish a rehearsal in the midst of a song only to lose the thread when they returned the next day. They were forever imploring Ronnie to put pen to paper so that none of these efforts would be lost. He always refused, responding famously, If it ain't worth remembering, it ain't worth writing down. Fortunately, Van Zant and the band was so inspired that they put together this latest effort entitled Sweet Home Alabama in less than an afternoon. Within days, Al Cooper had them back at Studio One, the Doraville, Georgia recording studio where they had put together their first album. Typically, the band was so sharp that they produced the eventual song in one take, but just to be on the safe side, Van Zant demanded another run-through and then provided the vocals. Al Cooper would tweak the final version in Los Angeles, adding horns and backup from industry pros Mary Clayton, known especially for her work on Gimme Shelter, and both Clyde e. King and Shirley Matthews, who appeared on numerous Steely Dan tracks and countless other songs, and an incipient American classic was in the can. The band all seemed to know what they had. The very night of its recording, Ronnie Van Zant called Jimmy Johnson, a producer and a member of the renowned Muscle Shoals recording studio rhythm section known as the Swampers, who are name-checked in Sweet Home, Alabama. He told Johnson that he had put the Swampers into a song, and Jimmy, responding with a skepticism typical of a longtime record industry professional, responded by asking if anybody would ever hear it. Van Zant said it would be big, as big as the Allman Brothers' Ramblin' Man, the single that catapulted that band to international fame. Although Leonard Skinner would include Sweet Home Alabama in their live performances throughout the end of 1973 and early 1974, it would not be officially released until April 15, 1974. Whether it was band management or MCA's malfeasance, unbelievably the song would be the second single released from the album Second Helping on June 24, 1974. With the first single, Don't Ask Me No Questions Getting Nowhere, 
and the album stalled. Finally, Sweet Home Alabama, which was already getting heavy FM radio airplay, was released and made an immediate impression. It would remain on the Billboard Hot 100 for 17 weeks, peaking at number 8 in October of 1974. Initially, this popularity was driven by a simple and irresistible melody and an interesting new sound that became omnipresent in the summer of 1974. But once the public and especially rock journalists began to analyze the lyrics in an attempt to decode the real meaning of Sweet Home Alabama, the song seemed to affect different people in many different ways, an effect that has never faded. Although massive amounts of journalism and scrutiny have been applied to the song, controversy has fundamentally swirled around two basic themes. That Sweet Home Alabama was the result of Leonard Skinner's deep animus and resentment towards Neil Young, and much more disturbing, that the song was really a reactionary anthem produced by a bunch of Southern racists who openly embraced the Deep South's past of segregation and even slavery. The Leonard Skinner-Neil Young feud nothing more than a creation of some bored journalists with too much time on their hands, can be debunked by comments from Ronnie Van Zant himself. The lyrics in the second stanza of the song immediately and pointedly mentioned Neil Young. Well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. Well, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember. A Southern man don't need him around anyhow. But after much public media discussion, which speculated on the song and Skinner's feeling about Neil Young personally, Ronnie Van Zant set the record straight. We wrote Sweet Home Alabama as a joke. We didn't even think about it. The words just came out that way. We just laughed like hell and said, ain't that funny? We love Neil Young. We love his music. As a not-so-inside joke, Van Zant would don a Neil Young t-shirt while performing live, although band members would always mention that that was nothing new. Personally, Neil Young was delighted with the song and even sent demos of his material to the band. He also had second thoughts about his characterization of the South when he wrote in his 2012 autobiography, I don't like my words when I listen to Southern Man. They are accusatory and condescending, not fully thought out, and too easy to misconstrue. Leonard Skinner began adding fuel to the fire of criticism that their music was motivated by racism when they began unfurling a huge Confederate battle flag during live shows. Provocative, even in 1974, Ronnie Van Zant understood both the potential for a deeply hostile reaction from the public and the media, and the need for constant promotion for a band that was looking to reach national prominence. Skinner might have loved the attention and their reputation as a bunch of kick-ass Southern rebels, but they were very uncomfortable with them and their music being labeled as racist. Attempting to diffuse such hostility, Van Zant commented on this issue and the specific references to Governor George Wallace. Wallace and I have very little in common. I don't like what he says about black people. We're not into politics. We don't have no education. And Wallace don't know anything about rock and roll. In a typically streetwise move, Ronnie would also famously blame the whole flag idea on MCA. That was strictly an MCA gimmick to start us off with some label. It was useful at first, but by now it's embarrassing, except in Europe where they really like all that stuff because they think it's macho American. Of course, there was nothing stopping Ronnie from refusing to display the flag, but by blaming the record company, he could have it both ways. He could claim such a prop was foisted on him and out of his control, and he could still appeal to a large group of fans who always reacted enthusiastically whenever the symbol was unfurled. Was Ronnie Van Zant a racist? Those who knew him personally said no, 
In fact, he was an unusual Southerner in that regard who expressed attitudes about individuals like Muhammad Ali and George Wallace that were for the region unusual and ahead of their time. But he was an ambitious musician who understood the fundamental that there really was no such thing as bad publicity, and it really didn't matter how it was generated. Skinner's second album, Second Helping, was not as balanced an effort as its first, but it didn't matter. Sweet Home Alabama propelled the album to gold record status in September of 1974 and also prompted additional attention for the band's first album. Skinner was also perceived internationally as a fresh, authentic American sound and became especially popular in the UK. Typical of the intense touring schedule that the band adopted over the next three years, Skinner began a grueling circuit of 84 shows that began in January and ended at the end of July, with only occasional two-week respites. They then went into the studio to record a specific single that would appear in the first few minutes of the upcoming Burt Reynolds film, The Longest Yard. In fact, the yet-to-be-produced song, Saturday Night Special, would be featured in the first scenes of the movie predictably a car chase involving police. Then it was back on the road, with the tour officially known as the Nothing Fancy Tour, starting in September of 1974 and ending November 7, 1975. This group of 153 shows would have two separate stops in Europe and be so demanding that the band itself began to refer to it as the Torture Tour. If Skinner was now achieving international prominence musically, they were also succumbing to the habits and attitudes of many prominent rock musicians of the era. Constantly touring, the band blew off steam by utterly destroying hotel rooms and fixtures and forever employing new ways to creatively detonate television sets, with hurling cans of beer on top of them until the set burst into flames, a particular favorite. With the band on tour most of the time, beer and hard alcohol became omnipresent during conscious hours, and serious narcotics use by the entire entourage began to affect the performances themselves, with Ronnie the most visibly impacted, his voice frequently raspy and vocal cords damaged. Still, when the band had it together, which was most of the time, their concise sets made their live shows among the most memorable of the 70s. Building to the encore crescendo of Freebird, which Ronnie would tease with a process that became practically a parody, this explosion of guitar solos became Skinner's signature closeout tradition, the fans heading to the exits thoroughly entertained. Ronnie was also typically cagey enough to begin to dedicate live performance of the song to Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley, by now deceased members of the Allmans, who Skinner actually didn't really know very well, but definitely a further way to endear the song to a similar fan base. Freebird was also important to the band. Its opening lines, If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? supplied by Alan Collins's wife Kathy when they were discussing their future together and whether or not they would ever settle down and get married. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Ronnie Van Zant. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books 
Whiskey Bottles and Brand New Cars, The Fast Life and Sudden Death of Leonard Skinnerd by Mark Rabowski, and Leonard Skinnerd Remembering the Free Birds of Southern Rock by Gene Odom. There are also additional photographs and bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>